0: Our text for this morning's sermon is Luke one sixty seven through eighty. Luke one sixty seven through eighty, looking again at Zechariah's prophecy at the end of chapter one of Luke. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray.
1: Uh, Father, I, I pray now that you give us the eyes to see what your word has for us this morning, that we would see how merciful, how loving you are. God, I pray that we would see how great a rescuer you are, uh, how you save us. Father, I pray that uh, this message wouldn't just be uh, transferring information, but would affect hearts. God, I pray that you might be pleased to... uh, Uh, change us through Your Word. Lord, I pray if anyone here is yet to trust You by faith, that they might this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want you to think for a moment about the most fearful times of your life. I want you to think about what moments thus far in your life have been the scariest moments uh, you've ever had to deal with. Uh, Maybe it was when you received bad news of some sort. Maybe it was when uh, you were threatened. But I want you to think about that moment. My guess is, in that moment, you felt paralyzed. Felt like it's hard to do anything because of the fear you're feeling. This is how the Bible describes how fear works. Let me give you an example. In Exodus uh, 15, uh, verse 14, after God has rescued Israel, uh, from the hands of the Egyptians and all the other nations are <laughs> looking at Israel now. When Israel is on their way towards them, they are all afraid. Here's what we read. The peoples have heard and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them all. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. That's what fear does to you. It paralyzes you, makes you tremble, makes you not be able to function whatever you're doing, whatever job is before you, if fear or anxiety is troubling your heart and mind, it's going to be difficult to function at all. I know all of you have experienced this. It's true uh, for all of us. If God in His grace did not intervene by sending His Son to us, all of us would be left in the shadow of death with no peace and with only fear. I don't know if you've thought about it, but every unbeliever is living with a tremendous amount, whether they will admit it or not, of anxiety, anxiousness, and fear about the unknown, about the future, or maybe fear of what their conscience is telling them about their own sin. I know that many of you may have walked in here this morning feeling like you walk in in the shadow of death with regrets, with shame, maybe with fear it isn't at all maybe unlike one of my heroes of the faith, a man that uh, lived about 150 years ago. Here's what he said. I was years and years upon the brink of hell. I mean in my own feeling. I was unhappy. I was desponding. I was despairing. I dreamed of hell. My life was full of sorrow and wretchedness, believing I was lost. Charles Spurgeon used these strong words to describe his adolescent years. But I want to tell you about his conversion story. I want to tell you about the moment that all changed. Despite his Christian upbringing, he was christened as an infant and raised in the congregational church. And despite his own efforts, he read the Bible daily and prayed. Spurgeon woke one January Sunday morning in 1850 with a deep sense of his need for deliverance. Because of a snowstorm, the 15-year-old's path to the church was diverted down a side street. For shelter, he ducked into a primitive Methodist chapel on Artillery Street. An unknown substitute lay preacher stepped into the pulpit and read his text Isaiah forty five twenty two Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else. Spurgeon's autobiography records his reaction. Here's what he says, quote, "...I had not much to say, thank God, our our," the preacher. He had not much to say, thank God, for that compelled him to keep on repeating his text, and there was nothing needed by me at any rate except this text. Then stopping, he pointed to where I was sitting under the gallery, and he said, that young man there looks very miserable." And he shouted, as I think only a primitive Methodist can, look, look, young man, look now. Then I had this vision, not in my eyes, but in in my heart. I saw what a Savior Christ was. Now I can never tell you how it was, but I no sooner saw whom I was to believe than I understood what it was to believe. And I did believe in one moment. As the snow fell on my road home from the little house of prayer, I thought every snowflake talked with me and told of pardon, the pardon I have found, for I was white as the driven snow. It's interesting. One of the greatest preachers that's ever lived was saved by a substitute preacher in a tiny little Methodist church during a snowstorm, the, the minister probably couldn't make it that Sunday. And the lay minister reads Isaiah 45 and says these words, Look unto Me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. If you look in your notes, that's my charge to you this morning. Look to Jesus for salvation. In Him we have land, family, family and blessing. Last week we looked at this text and saw how God had begun to fulfill the promises given to David in the Davidic covenant. This Sunday we're going to look at what God, how God has fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant. And uh, we're not going to look in as much detail into the Abrahamic covenant as we did the Davidic last week, but then we're going to look at what God has done for us Uh, in Christ. But I want you to think about that for a moment. Can a person really be saved by merely looking to God for salvation? A miserable teenager fearing hell, knowing his sin, could he really find peace in a moment? Is that as simple as it can be, the first thing I want you to see is the sovereign mercy of our saving God. The sovereign mercy of our saving God. I want you to see the unilateral, gracious action that God takes for our salvation. Unilateral, not bilateral. Not God does some, and we do some. I want you to see how desperate a position we are all in, and what God has done on our behalf to save us. Look at verse 67 of Luke chapter one. This is right after Zachariah's mouth has been loosed at the birth of his son John. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people. I want you, I want you to see that. Salvation comes when God acts, when He visits His people, when He redeems, people get saved. That's how the promises are fulfilled. When God decides to fulfill His gracious, merciful actions, He visited, He redeemed. What does redeemed mean? It means saving at a cost. He came and He saved, He bought, He ransomed people at the cost of His only begotten son look at verse 69 and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us now the thing we're going to see in Luke's gospel as we work our way through it is one of the major themes is salvation. It might surprise you, but the words Savior, salvation, and saved are not in Mark and not in Matthew. Seven times those words are used in John. Twenty-two times in Luke's Gospel. It's a theme. Luke puts on display, God as a Savior, God as a Redeemer. God is one who sends a mighty Savior. We talked about how God in sending Christ has raised up a horn of salvation. The horns represent a strong deliverance, a mighty salvation. It takes mighty power to save. And this is the salvation God has raised up for His people. Look at verse 72. To show the mercy promised to our Father. So God came and visited. God came to redeem by raising up a strong Savior to remember a promise to show mercy to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant, the oath He swore to our father Abraham. The verses that Scott read were different times the Abrahamic covenant was repeated throughout the Scripture. The Psalms pick it up uh, five or six times. In Genesis we see it. We see parts of it all throughout the Old Testament. It's probably the key covenant that we see other than the new covenant that the Abrahamic covenant is pointing towards. And when it comes to the Abrahamic covenant, we're going to be real simple this morning. Abraham was promised three things. He was promised land, children, and blessing. I want you to remember that when God created man, and man sinned, remember the judgments that God gave Adam and Eve and Satan the serpent. There was a cursing on the land. No longer was it just going to be fruitful, but now it was going to bear thorns. There was going to be pain in childbirth. Having children was now going to be painful. It's going to be cursed. There's going to be stillbirths. Little children are going to die and people are going to die. And rather than blessing, just going all over the earth, pain, suffering, death, the result of the curse has come. But now, God comes to Abraham, not someone who had earned this privilege, God came and said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a covenant. I'm going to keep it. It's not going to depend on you. In fact, while Abraham showed faith that we remember, he also lacked faith many times in Genesis. Abraham, in a sense, didn't come up on his end of the bargain He lacked faith, just like we lack faith, yet God promised, even when Abraham lacked faith, as you read through the Genesis account, God blesses Abraham. God blesses Jacob, even though he's a deceiver. But God said to Abraham in Genesis 12, go from your country and from your kindred into your father's house to the land that I will show you. I'll make you a great nation, He's going to give him a big family, and I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I'll curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, these are not just three random blessings God's giving Abraham. You know, you might think, well, he could have done a lot of things for him, but why? Land, family, blessing. Well, the way God designed the human heart is that these three things is what everyone wants. You see, land represents a place of belonging, a place of safety, where a place of shelter where your enemies can't get you, a place of rest, a place where you belong. I mean, who doesn't want land? Can't tell you how many times I've been deer hunting, wishing I owned that field over there where all the deer are. <laughs> and I remember the story that came to my mind as I was thinking about this this week is when I was in my senior year at the University of Sioux Falls, Laura had just graduated in December from Northwestern in Minnesota and finally moved to Sioux Falls. Finally, it wasn't this long distant uh, driving every weekend and I'm so lovesick, I can barely function and do my homework. Finally, she moves to Sioux Falls in with uh, Marissa, uh, my uh, our sister-in-law, my sister-in-law. And... Uh, They lived in this apartment, and right under where she lived was this sweet old lady, Minetta. She had a trach, and she was the sweetest thing you've ever seen. And uh, one day I got to help her throw garbage in the uh, dumpsters, and we kind of sparked up a friendship. But I'll never forget Minetta's husband had dementia, and he was—he wasn't the nicest guy in the world at least at that stage in his life (laughs) but the thing that uh, he would do make her do all the time is all of his buddies had land and he would say honey where's my land where's my land and so finally she says you want to see your land i'll show you your land yeah let's go to i want to go to my land so she drove him out to the cemetery their little plot of land they had and weekly they would take chairs and they would sit at their plot of land. So this man desired land. <laughs> and who doesn't want blessing? Who wants cursing? Who wants judgment? This is in- inherent in every person's heart. In fact, as I was thinking about it, think about hell. Hell is described as a bottomless pit. Nothing to stand on. No security for your feet. Imagine that. Couldn't even touch. We know it's dark there, but there's no place to stand. By the way, there's no family there. It's apart from the presence of God's blessing The only thing present in hell is the wrath of God. But yet God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to give you land, family, and blessing. Or land, seed. There's going to be a child, which obviously points to this hope way back in Genesis 3 that from the seed of the woman there's going to be a child that will crush the serpent's head and begin to reverse the curses and bring blessing upon the land. So this is this oath that God swore to Abraham. God swore it to him. This is God's action on His behalf. And look at what it says, to grant us, and I just want to stop there, If somebody grants you something, it means you didn't have it. So God swore an oath to Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve Him without fear. I don't want you to miss these words. Our salvation is 100% a gift granted to us. It's nothing we earn. Here's how the Bible talks about it. Philippians 1-4. Paul says, always in every prayer of mine for you, making my prayer with joy, God, Paul, Paul's thanking God for this church because of your partnership in the gospel from the last day until now. He says this, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He sees those believers in in Philippi as those whom God has began a good work in their heart. They didn't begin it. The reason why he believes it's going to last to the end is because they didn't start it. If they started it, it would surely end. But he believed it would last, so he's thanking God, not them, for their faith. And then a few verses later in verse 28, he says this, "...do not be frightened by your opponents or in anything by your opponents, for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God." He wants them to know your salvation is from God. And then he says this, "...for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake." Someone might say salvation is bilateral. God sends Jesus to die on the cross and you have to believe. Well, that's true. But Paul just said in his letter to the Philippians that if you believed that even that was the gift of God, it's been granted to you to believe. And not only to believe, but also this great privilege to suffer like Christ suffered As you're doing the will of God. In Second Timothy, you know, what's the New Testament God? How do you preach the gospel in the New Testament? Repent and believe in Christ. The one who died for sinners. The one who lived the life you could never live. And when you trust in him, his life is counted to your account you get the reward of Jesus' perfect life and the life you actually lived and deserved punishment for, He took. He paid for sins. Repent and believe what we just saw that believing is granted to us. And listen to 2 Timothy 2.24. He says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Why? That God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. You want to know where repentance comes from? The gift and the mercy of God. If you're trusting in Jesus Christ in here, and it's giving you one ounce of pride over the unbelieving world, you do not understand your salvation. God is the One who not only sends Christ to die for you, but Christ's death for you also purchases the faith and repentance required for salvation to give you as a gift. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus when Nicodemus wanted to know what he had to do. He said, you need to be born of the Spirit. Something you can't do. You need God to visit you. You need God to show up and bring salvation. So this salvation is from the sovereign mercy of our saving. God. second see the purpose of his sovereign mercy so why does God answer these promises to Abraham look at verse 74 here's the reason that that's a purpose statement so why did God raise up this king why did God answer these promises to Ab- to Abraham why is he showing mercy that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Think about that. What better gift could there be? Imagine if you could serve God without fear. Not having to worry of condemnation not having to worry of curses, not having to worry of an angry judge waiting for you on the other side. That mercy was salvation from our enemies. See, you can only be without fear if you get rid of all your enemies. And we talked last week that our greatest enemy is not outside of us, but it's inside of us. It's our own sinful hearts that cause us to doubt God. That cause us to turn away from Him and turn to His creation for life and happiness rather than to Him. So the purpose of God's mercy is so that you can serve without fear. And if you can serve without fear, then you're going to be able to serve much better. And it's going to be a joy to serve. So what does it mean to serve God? We need to think about this because we can think about this wrongly. We can think about God as a God who's up there saying, I'm empty inside and I need you to serve me and I need you to do something for me. If we think God is like that, we blaspheme God. Here's what the Bible says, Acts 17.24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives life to all mankind, life, breath, and everything." So God isn't served by man as though He needed anything. Ever. Ever. We never serve God because we think He's weak and He needs us. He does not need us. Yes, it's true He wants us, but He doesn't need us and He doesn't need our service as though... We need to serve Him as though He lacks something. When everything you are is from Him. Your life, your breath, everything is from Him. It's like me giving a gift to my daughter and then my daughter saying, Dad, i got a gift for you, and giving it back. We never can make God our debtor. Here's how the psalmist says it, Psalm 58. 8 through 15. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or from your goat, the goats of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls and drink the blood of goats? Offer to God. Okay, so he said, I'm not after a certain type of service. Here's what we're to offer God. You ready? Here's what serving God is. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High, and call upon Me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify Me. You want to know what it looks like to serve God, to glorify God? You're created to glorify God. That's the purpose of your life, to serve Him and glorify Him. And the psalmist just said the way we serve God is by offering up a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In the time of trouble, you don't look here, you don't look there, you look to Him. That's the only thing we can do, and that's what that man told Charles Spurgeon. Look to Him. Only God can save. Look to Him. And God in His mercy and His grace made it so we can look to Him and trust in Him, not as fearful sinners waiting to be crushed under His righteous judgment, but rather we can look to Him as a merciful, loving Father who paid the price for our sins so that we can be a part of His family. We don't have to serve Him the way Israel was serving Him up, but up until this point. Up until this point, Israel served God in fear because of their sins and His righteousness. Just let me give you two stories to illustrate this. First Samuel 6:19 you might remember this one When the ark of the covenant was stolen by the Philistines and they sent it back because it wasn't going good for them when they had the presence of God in 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 their land they broke out in tumors their god's tipped over and broke they send the ark of the covenant back here's what we read in verse 19 when when this uh ark is coming uh and it back to them now our verse 13 i'm sorry now the people of besh shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley and when they lifted up their eyes they saw the ark and they rejoiced to see it so the ark was stolen it's coming back The presence of God is represented in the ark and they all start rejoicing. Praise God. The presence of God is with us. But then verse 19, and He struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them and the people mourned because the Lord struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? To whom shall He go up away from us? Imagine. Imagine if in a moment 70 men drop dead right here. Imagine the morning. Oh great, the presence of God is coming. Look, the Ark of the Covenant is coming back. 70 dead. Get rid of this thing. Where can we send it? How do you handle this God? And maybe even the more famous story, 2 Samuel 6.5, when David says this, David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the fleshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. So the ark of the covenant's on a cart being pulled by oxen. It's not supposed to be being moved that way. That's not how God said it. But they're celebrating victory. It begins to tip over, and Uzziah steadies it from falling on the ground. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzziah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzziah. And that place is called perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of obed Edom, the Gittite. So when Zechariah is saying that because of this new Savior, the people of God, God keeps His promises so that His people can serve without fear of their enemies, and yes, it means physical enemies, but it also means, and mainly means, as we're going to see at the end of this text, Deliverance from our sins. Deliverance from our sins. So the purpose of God's sovereign mercy and saving us is that we can offer peaceful service to Him forever without fear. What an amazing blessing that is. I know some of you are thinking, if you're thinking how I would think, but the New Testament tells us to fear God all throughout the New Testament. So what's the difference between the two types of fear? Uh, the main difference is this. We as believers ought to fear God, have a reverent awe of God, because He shows us tender mercy in Christ but we fear Him as a father who's a good father. A good father always disciplines his children. This is Hebrews 12. Just like a child who has a loving father fears his father's discipline, even though that discipline, if you have a perfect father and that father is God, always is for your good. So we have reverent fear of God because we know who He is, but we don't fear Him as a judge waiting for destruction at the end of our life. The third thing I think we see in this text is John comes onto the scene. Now Zachariah turns his attention to John's ministry, John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Christ. And so I want to ask you to listen to John and see the sun rise so you can walk peacefully in His light. Now the imagery here of Scripture is just amazing to me. Look at verse 76. And you, child, speaking of John the Baptist, will be called prophet of the Most High, for you'll go before the Lord to prepare His ways to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of sins. So we've seen salvation from our enemies on the table, but now we see that this salvation culminates is, uh, into a salvation of the forgiveness of their sins. Now we're going to talk in a few chapters a lot about John's ministry, about his preaching. He, he's come to prepare the way. The Jews at this time practice a type of baptism called proselyte baptism where if you're a Gentile and you want to trust in Israel's God, they need to cleanse you and baptize you because you're a dirty Gentile and you can't be a part of the God without baptism. Now John comes and he really stirs the pot because he shows up and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jewish people come and they think they're going to be saved because they're children of Abraham. And he comes and he says, you guys need baptism. Who told you to to run from the wrath of God? They don't think they have the wrath of God on them. So John comes, promotes this uh, baptism of repentance, saying the only one that's going to be baptized, the only one who's going to be ready for the Savior is a person who's taken a good look at their own sin and says, I need a baptism. I need to be cleaned up. So this is his ministry to prepare the way for Christ. He's fulfilling prophecies, uh, Malachi 3 1, Isaiah 40, uh, verses 3 through 5. I want you to see this imagery. Here here's what Isaiah 40 verse 3 says. A voice cries in the wilderness, or a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain shall be made low, and on uneven ground shall become level and rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. Here's what I want you to see. There's a person crying out, people hearing, and then seeing. That's what I want you to see here. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. A prophet comes and speaks and prepares a way for the Lord, and then people see the glory. They see the Lord. And if you look at verse 78 in our text, um, so John came to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sin because of the tender mercy of our God. Never forget that. God saves us because He's a merciful God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high And does it get any more beautiful this than this? To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. Charles Spurgeon's life before he was saved as a teenager was one sitting in darkness, fearing the impending judgment of hell because he knew about his sins, but there was a herald, there was a average lay minister that spoke and said, look to him and be saved. And he looked and light shone into his heart. I just want you to feel the graciousness of God in the Gospel. Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. It reminds me of Isaiah 60, prophesying of Christ. Verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light is come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will ra- rise upon you and His glory will be seen upon you. And the nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You see, when the sun shines on you, you shine. And other people can look and find hope in darkness. Isaiah 45:21 says this, there is no other god besides me, a righteous god and savior. It's unbelievable. How can God be righteous and a savior of sinners? That's the problem of the entire Bible. If God's righteous, He's going to judge right and He's going to send you to hell. But our God, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. That's Charles Spurgeon's verse. Turn to me and be saved is how the ESV says it. In the New King James, it was, look to me. You know what I love about this? What's John's ministry? It's a ministry of repentance. A ministry of turning. I'm looking for life in all these sins and all this idolatry, and I turn and I see, I look. Let me read it again. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me, Turn to Me, look to Me, and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. By Myself I have sworn, from My mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To Me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of Me, are righteousness and strength now get this only in the lord shall it be said of sam ellison there's righteousness and strength only in the lord will it ever be said of sam ellison there is righteousness and strength to him shall come to him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him and this is so sweet in the lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Put your name in there. In the Lord shall you be justified and glory. Or in, the, in the Lord, all of you shall be justified and, and glory. The only way you'll be found not guilty, you'll be found justified is if you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. So my question for everyone here is simple. Have you looked and seen the Son and does He look like a Savior to you? If you come in here and you think you're going to be fine, you're a good person, your sin isn't no big deal, then you're going to pass right by Christ. You're not going to see any glory in Him. But if by grace, God's given you the vision into your own heart, into your own life, and you realize you are sitting in the shadow of death without hope, what I want you to see is that when Jesus Christ was born, a light came into a dark world And only in Christ can you know what true peace looks like. What a gracious privilege we have to be able to serve the living God, not waiting for a lightning bolt to strike us. And I just got to give one. I hope this is okay, Don. I'm going to use you as an example. One of my good friends, Don Frisco. Many years after he was saved, he told me, you know, I didn't live a free day in my salvation for a long time. When he would share the Gospel with someone, he would see pride in it or he would see something wrong. Every offer of service, in a sense, he was able to see sin. But by the grace of God, what God comforted him with is Gospel salve. Let me tell you this. You'll never serve Him perfectly. You'll never do a deed perfect enough for God. But you can serve in peace because that's why Jesus came. He served perfectly where you didn't so that you can know the tender mercy of God and salvation. Let's pray. Father, thank You that we can serve You in the light of Christ. That as we're convicted of sin, as the Holy Spirit points out sin, God, I thank You that the Holy Spirit grabs us in that moment and takes us to the cross where You dealt with sin. Lord, You are worthy of our praise. If we are ever justified, if we are ever saved, it could only be because You are a great Savior. So we give You honor and praise. Amen.